ecoshock.org. Will, thank you so much for spending valuable time with us. My pleasure. Thank you, Alex. I'm Alex Smith for Radio Ecoshock. Check out the Radio Ecoshock website. We're at ecoshock.org. Fellow Australian David Spratt has a full and fitting tribute to Will Steffen, just published in the Climate Code Red blog. David's title is Will Steffen's Crucial Climate Ideas on Hot House Earth, Tipping Cascades, and Nonlinearity. I recommend this article to grasp the essentials of Will Steffen. As a rock climber, Will Steffen took on the high mountains in Nepal and dangerous ice fields. For his work on climate, Will received awards and death threats. He battled climate deniers and hostile media in Australia and around the world. Stefan the communicator drew great scientists together, developed crucial insights and tools. He advised governments and never, to the very end, stopped trying. Will Stefan was 75. He did not live to see the new climate, to find out. But in a way, he of all people already knew. KBOO Portland on 90.7 FM and streaming on the web at kboo.fm. Tune in to Pathways, a show featuring conversations with leaders in personal development and cultural evolution. Join me, host Paul O'Brien, or my co-host Donald Altman every Sunday morning from 8.30 to 9 a.m. You can find out more about the show or listen to the program archive at kboo.fm slash pathways. Here at KBOO, on February 20th, we'll be celebrating National Love Your Pet Day. If you ever experienced the loss of an animal friend, you are welcome to share with us how you felt and how it changed you to lose that beloved friend and ally. An unfortunate downside to the blessing of the friendship our animal friends provide is the almost inevitable goodbye that comes when our dear friends' lifespans are far shorter than our own. You can send your audio to publicaffairs at kboo.org with the subject line Pet Day, or you can also call the station at 503-231-8032 and choose Voice Mailbox 302 and go ahead and record your story. Email publicaffairs at kboo.org with any questions. Connect with your favorite community radio station on social media. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash kboomradio. And follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash kboo. We also have a YouTube channel at youtube.com slash radio. We also provide content to the free music archive. An interactive library of high-quality legal audio downloads. That's at freemusicarchive.org slash curator slash kboo. You can find all of this and more on the KBOO website, kboo.fm. Thanks for listening. <laughs> Howdy, everybody. I'm Rose Maddox, and I'd like to tell you that you're listening to KBOO in Portland, Oregon, the station that I listen to when I'm in the area. Welcome to Between the Covers on KBOO Portland, 97FM. I'm your host this week, Avi Marr. Caroline Levitt is a New York Times bestselling author of 12 novels, including Pictures of You, Is This Tomorrow, Cruel, Beautiful World, and Wither Without You. A former New York Foundation of Arts fellow, she was also a finalist in the Sundance Screenwriters Lab in Pilot and Features. A book critic for People and AARP, she is also a columnist blogger for Psychology Today. Her essays have appeared in New York Magazine, Modern Love in the New York Times, The Millions, The Daily Beast, The Manifest Station, Salon, Lit Hub, and more. She teaches novel writing online for Stanford and UCLA Writers Program Extension and also works with private clients.
Welcome to Between the Covers, Caroline Levitt. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. To start out with, I wanted to talk about, because you're in this moment in the publishing of your latest book, Days of Wonder, I love a chance to talk to you about the process of bringing a finished book into the world. So where are you in the publication process with your new one? Oh, it has been so, so long. Right now I'm on the final stretch. What happened is that my publisher, Algonquin, was bought up by a bigger publisher, Hache. So it stalled everything. And I had a previous editor at Algonquin and then he left and now I have a new editor and he just did his first edits, which were fabulous. And I finished them and I'm waiting for second edits from him. Then it's going to go through into the copy edit stage and then it goes to, you know, page proofs and then it'll probably going to not come out until winter 2024, which seems like a long way away, but it really isn't because they start the whole publicity machine eight months ahead of time. So that's quite a ride because well, the next yeah. thing I was going to ask you was about Algonquin because one of the things I was reading in your interviews, it was that transition between when you were with one publisher with pictures of you and ended up at Algonquin and the difference in the reactions between the editors? They saved my life. I was with another big publisher, had a three-book deal. The first book did okay, but, you know, it didn't really sell that well, even though it got great reviews. Second book, same deal. Didn't sell, got great reviews for major places, but just did not sell. So I had written the book that was Pictures of You, and my editor called me up as third book in my contract and said, you know, Caroline, we're really sorry, but we just don't think this book is special. So I, of course, froze and said, what do you mean you don't think it's special? Do you, you know, how can I fix it? And she said, you know, none of us think you can fix it. And I said, well, can I, can I show you something else? I'm working on something else. There was that silence again. And then she said, you know, best of luck. We don't think so. So I hung up the phone and called my agent hysterical, saying they rejected it on contract. You know, this is my ninth book. Other than my first novel, I haven't had any sales that were anything at all. Nobody really knows who I am, except like a few major newspapers, but nobody else. And she said, don't worry, we'll figure it out, we'll figure it out. So of course I called all my writer friends, just sobbing hysterically saying, well, I'm going to keep writing, but I'm not going to be publishing. My career is over. And and one of my friends said, no, 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 no. She said, look, I just got to Algonquin. I have an editor there named Andre Miller. And I think she'd really like your book. And I said, yeah, right. And she said, no, 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 let me just send it to her. So she sent Andre the book. And I got a call from Andre about a week later. And, you know, we were just talking about Algonquin. And all of a sudden I thought, she sounds like she's pitching me, the publisher. And I stopped her and said, Andre, I got to tell you, I got to be honest. You can look this up anyway. I don't sell books. And she started to laugh and she said, you will now. You will know. She said, we really want this book. And I thought, okay, you know. So they took that book, and I didn't expect anything to happen. They got it into six printings before it came out. And I watched them as they did it. I went to BEA, and they were all, all the Algonquin people were there. And they would grab people and then grab me and say, Carolyn, this is head of Publishers Weekly. You have to, you have to read this book. And say, you have to read this book. This author is up and coming fabulous. They just, I watched them do this. The first week the book was out, it got on the New York Times book review. Uh, you know, it made the bestseller list. And I remember looking at it saying, this must be a mistake. And then it became a Costco pennies pick, which means it's in every Costco across the country. Then the funniest thing was that the woman, the editor who had told me it wasn't special, called my agent and said, do you think Caroline would like to come back? And my agent said, no, I don't really think so. So it was an experience. It was just as different as nice day. I always tell people, you know, don't give up because look what happened to me. And you can't let other people, what other people say, make you feel that it's true. If I could have like thought, okay, well, I'm not a special writer. My career is over. But you know, and then none of this would have happened. And I think also it made me realize that a career is like this, you know, and if you're going to really obsess about it, you're going to be unhappy. Just 
you know, write the work you want to write. That's what I tell people. And also, if it happened to me, it can happen to anybody. Well, what I, what I was hoping is that you could speak about how a writer stays loyal to your novel during a challenging challenging moment like what you went through. How do you how do you protect this as your baby? You know, how do you stay true to it when you have people talk to you that way? And that's why I love this story because it's both ends of the spectrum happen to you in the same with the same work. It's very hard. It's really hard. I mean, usually, usually before I start a book, the book germinates for like three years. And it's always about something that's haunting me. That's a question that's really important to me. Um, that has to do with something I'm figuring out with pictures of you. It was how do you forgive the unforgivable? How do you get people to forgive you for the unforgivable? And then how do you forgive yourself? Which is my issue. So I never knew how the book was going to end. And by the time I had finished the book, I was saying it's almost like, you know, when I'm writing, it's almost like I enter another world and the characters were real to me and I loved them and I wanted to protect them and I wanted the best for them, even though I put them through this terrible experience. So, you know, when when I heard the first thing from the first publisher at that stage, I was ready to say, whatever you want me to do, I'll do. You want me to make her a lumberjack? I'll make her a lumberjack. But when I got to Algonquin, I began to realize for the first time that an editor and a writer, it's really a collaborative experience. And what was interesting is Andra would come to me and say, look, I have an idea and you might hate it, but just listen to me. And then she would say, well, what if we make the husband do this and this and this? And nine times out of 10, I would say, oh my gosh, that's a fabulous idea. I want to do that. And she would say, oh, good, good. I'm glad because I won't make you if you don't want to. So there was that incredible level of trust with her where I felt whatever she's going to tell me to do, we can talk about. There was one thing that she did not want me to do that I said, you know, I really feel like I have to put this in the novel. It's important. And she said, okay, you know, it's your book. And I did it and it was fine. And then afterwards she told me the reason why she didn't want me to do it, it was because she was newly pregnant and she hadn't told anybody. And the book had to do with pregnancy and it was making her feel uncomfortable. And I said, okay, well, maybe that's a good thing, <laughs> you know, to make a reader uncomfortable. But I think it's, it's just really important to have the right editor because then you have this sense of trust because they love your characters. You love your characters. You both want the best. And, you know, I'm always willing to compromise. If someone has a better idea, I feel great. You know, tell me and I'll make it my own. But I think it, I think you're, you're making such a good point about you have to be in a relationship where the person believes mm-hmm. in is on the side of your story. Yes, you exactly do. Because it's, I've had a lot of, I mean, before I got to Algonquin, I bounced around and I was with five different publishers and about six or seven different editors. And a lot of them were not, you know, it was, it was a difficult time for me because I didn't feel like I was on their side. I didn't feel like I was important. And I just didn't feel like I had a say in my own books. But now I do. I just felt, well, you know, I'm so lucky to be working with somebody who respects me and who is really, really a talented editor too. So, and that makes all the difference. It just makes all the difference. But it sounds like the starting point, you know, for sort of takeaways for emerging writers, that the starting point is you have to feel there's respect for the narr- narrative itself and for the story itself. Oh, and then, yeah. And then be flexible. Yeah. It's the same thing with agents, too. I I tell writers when they're looking for agents, like, don't just take the first agent that accepts you. To talk to them and see what the, you know, see what the relationship is like. My first agent was a great agent, great, great agent. But our personalities did not mesh. She was very businesslike. She was sort of cold. And I always used to, I don't smoke anything. And I used to pretend I was smoking cigarettes when I was talking to her because I was so nervous because she was very matter of fact. So when I got my second agent, I thought, you know what, I want somebody who's really warm and wonderful and, you know, almost mother henning me because that's important. And that's what I got. So the relationships do matter, do matter. 
So With or Without You, your latest book, deals with a main character who's transformed on multiple levels by a medical crisis that kind of rewires <laughs> your brain. What questions were you most curious about in a change like that in a character? I was, well, first of all, I have to say that um, this is sort of my, when I, when I gave birth to my son, I got dramatically and really, really sick. I mean, I was, I was dying in the hospital. They put me in a medical coma. No one thought I would survive. I was sick afterwards for a year. And they had given me something called memory blockers, which, you know, so I would, wouldn't react, I guess. I don't really know why they did that. But when I came out and when I was well after a year, I was getting all these PTSD things where smells would set me off. I had nightmares. And I went to a therapist and the therapist said, you know, you can't process these memories because you don't remember them. She said, you're a writer. Why don't you write it? And I thought, okay, I'll do that. So I wrote this earlier coma book called um, Coming Back to me. It was a very serious book and it didn't make me feel better. So about four years ago, um, my husband had to go on a, a press thing to Norway for a week and I was by myself and I could not sleep. I was afraid to go to sleep because it felt to me like sleep, coma, sleep, coma. So I stayed up all night watching movies and I thought, this is not good. I went to another therapist and the therapist said, you know what? You wrote you wrote the wrong book. Why don't you write a book about a different character who has your experience? So I said, okay. So I created this character, Stella, to see how she would go through it. And unlike me, Stella was very practical. You know, she was a nurse, she was practical, she had her life formed up. And unlike me, Stella remembered everything in her coma, which was really helpful for me to heal because I didn't remember any of it. But through Stella, I could sort of weave through it. And because Stella's experience was not terrifying, um, it helped me. And, you know, I it began to be actually a happy novel for me. And the question that was always in my not in my mind was how do you process things you don't remember? How do you process changes in yourself? Mm -hmm. And what is that like? I mean, unlike me, Stella came out of the coma with a major gift. I mean, I did not come out with a talent for painting or anything else. But what did happen to me was <laughs> I began to think of this trauma as a gift because what it did is it actually made me a happier person because I was so grateful for everything. I mean, I just, I would, I had to go to, for a year afterwards, I had to go to a surgeon, a hematologist, regular doctor, my obstetrician, like three times a week. And I would walk in just so happy because, uh, oh, I can walk and I can, you know, because I had to learn how to rely, learn to walk. I can walk and I can taste this food and I'm so lucky. And all the doctors just kind of looked at me like, you know, okay, well, this is like, we wish you would talk to our other patients. And I would say, I will, I will. It made me realize that, you know, lots of terrible things will happen to people throughout their lives. And I feel now like, well, you have a choice how to deal with them. It's always two roads. You can go within yourself and just not proceed, or you can look at it as, okay, another layer of life has been ripped off and torn away, and now I'm vulnerable. What am I gonna do with that? And what I decided to do was just be open to everybody, you know, and just be compassionate and talk to them and say, this is my truth. I'm not going to be embarrassed anymore about anything. I'm not going to be ashamed anymore about anything. I'm just going to tell you, this is who I am. This is what's going through. And maybe it will help you. And as I did that, this incredible thing happened where more and more people started opening up to me. And it was funny because at first I did it really shyly or I'd be giving a talk and then people would come afterwards and they'd sort of mumble and whisper and say, I'd say, what, what? And they'd say, well, me too. I felt that way too. And thank you for writing this. And then it was so gratifying to me because I felt I'm putting kindness out into the world. I'm putting good into the world. And that's an amazing thing. You know, that's an amazing thing. So when I look at this book, even though it's about trauma, I look at it and I think, oh, what a happy book. It's a book that's just full of love. And that became very important to me. So I have about 100 questions about that. 
Let me start with one of the first ones that came, came to me is what, I, what I'm hearing you say is that one of the things when you came out of it with after a traumatic experience was a massive amount of gratitude at how lucky you were that you could easily not be here. You're here with your beautiful child. You made it through so many things to be grateful for. So my first question is, is that a quality you already brought with you into that experience that got amplified or was it something that changed? That's a great question. And the answer to that is it was there to some extent. I mean, I've, (laughs) you know, I always laugh when I say this because parts of my life are really like a soap opera. I, um, many years ago before I met my second husband, I was engaged to this guy and we had been living together for four years and two weeks before our wedding he woke up at night and said I don't feel so good and then he dropped it and it was like yeah it was like in my arms literally in my arms and I completely fell apart completely fell apart it took me five years to get over that I took all it was it was just a mess it was just I really felt like somebody had ripped off a layer of life and I was seeing what life was really like and I could not cope I was very lucky to have a lot of friends I was lucky to have um money we had saved up and I traveled around the country staying with friends and seeing psychics and mediums and all this stuff and I realized that what I wanted from the mediums was I just wanted to hear good news didn't matter if I believed I just wanted to hear well in two years you'll start to feel better and I actually I actually like was told by the therapist again, write about it. And I said, I can't, I'm going to cry. And she said, write about it. So I wrote about it. And my friend actually sent it in to, I forget what magazine it was. It was some big women's magazine and they published it. And I thought, oh my God, I just lay myself raw. I I felt ashamed. I felt like now everybody's going to want to talk about it and they're going to want to see me and they're going to feel sorry for me. What happened instead is I started getting hundreds of letters from young widows or, you know, young women whose boyfriend had died saying, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for writing this. I I just, you know, are telling me their story. And it healed me. You know, it was like reading all those letters. I thought, I'm making all these connections. It was like the family of man. And I realized that in a way, it was kind of a gift. And it actually made me more open and more compassionate. And when I met Jeff, my second husband um my forever husband um again it was that sense of gratitude like oh my god i can't believe you know i was able to meet somebody else and he's nice and he's kind and he's funny i will say that during our wedding ceremony i sobbed through the whole thing because i was so afraid he was going to drop dead (laughs) during the ceremony but he he didn't so that's an interesting question but i think it's right it did it just sort of amplified itself and said okay this is this is what you're going to do and this is what you're going to do to help yourself and to help others and that was really important to me it sounds like there's kind of a twin trajectory here of that it's there's such an invitation with trauma to move into closing down our cynicism and it sounds like it's part of your nature or that you chose the other path that you were able to move towards incorporating it and making it helping it make you more deeply human well it you know the weird thing is that i i grew up in kind of a nightmare sort of family my father was just an abusive brute horrible terrible my mother my mother we believe was bipolar she could be incredibly loving and then she would be incredibly you know focused on all the terrible things that could happen like don't go out of the house you'll get killed somebody will murder you or or you know all kinds of criticism why do you look that way why are you that way on and on and on and on and i started to rebel against it and i didn't know how and the first way i rebelled against it is i was very different from the time i was 12 until I'd say until I was about 28. I was angry. I was nasty to people. You know, I was sort of cruel because I didn't want anybody hurting me. And I don't know what happened, but all of a sudden I decided I didn't want to be like that anymore. And I went into therapy and it was really, really hard 
But, you know, my therapist said, well, why don't you just act as if you're kind? He said, practice it. Practice being a nice person. I said, okay. And I distinctly remember that, you know, I was going out with this guy then, and I was always, like, nasty in the morning. I said, yeah, I had to have my coffee, and I was rude and miserable. So I thought, okay, I'm going to try something different. So I woke up in the morning. I still was feeling nasty, and I wanted to hurt everybody. And I walked up to him and gave him a big kiss and said, hi, good morning. And he looked at me, and he was so startled. And he said, a smile for me? Really? And it changed me. I thought, oh, my God, this is great. Look what I'm getting back. I'm going to do more of this. And it took me a while and it took me a lot of practice, but I kept getting like this positive reinforcement from everybody, you know, and people would say, oh, you're such a good friend. I'd say, really, me? You know, I've been like the worst friend ever. And I sort of turned into who I wanted to be. And, you know, it took a lot of work, but I'm I'm grateful for that. I'm really grateful for that. It's mm-hmm. an amazing trajectory. I mean, that you that you can decide I want to be completely different. And then you walked in the path of that. I mean, just bringing it back to the book, I'm thinking there's this character who, you know, so much in a narrative art, there's the, you know, the deep change in the person, but you actually played it out with this scenario where the person literally goes into a bardo, goes into a liminal space and kind of comes out a different person. It was hard. It was hard. And the whole time I was doing this, my family really reacted negatively. I mean, my mother and my sister kept saying, you're such a Pollyanna. Why do you have to be such a Pollyanna? Because they would say like, oh, I have a headache. It's probably a brain tumor. And I would say, you know, it probably isn't because brain tumors would be this. And what you have is more of a headache. They would say like, stop. I don't want to hear it from you. You're to this. And the more I heard it, the more I realized, okay, well, they need, they obviously have a need for drama and trauma and whatever and obviously when I try to get them out of it it makes it worse for them so I need to just surround myself by more positive people and so I did that too and that helped too but you can I always tell people you can you can change anyone can change if you really want to and if you're willing to put in the work which is can be years I mean it did take me years but it also does sound like in a way, to me, it sounds like it's opposite. It sounds like you were able to keep your own voice of what you believed in and that you were a sunnier person and that you weren't going to agree with your mom to become more right. comfortable. And, that, right. and that's what kind of pushed you forward was actually your desire to be who you actually were. Right. Yeah, you know, it's true. I actually, my mom said when I once asked her, like, what I was like as a kid, and she said, oh, you know, she told me that I was very, that, my sister was a very serious little girl and she would have tantrums every day and she said when I was born as a younger sister I was this sunny little kid and I was always laughing and carrying on and then it slowly got tamped down so I think it was always there Uh, you're right I think I just had to sort of rediscover it and bring it back up and have that joy about life and how incredible it is well just bringing you back to this to Stella again one of the things that I adore about this book is you're writing about that I that I asked myself how did she do that is the way you documented this sort of dropped into timeless other world (laughs) coma space how did you hang out and invent that well you know as I say I didn't remember anything when I was in the coma, what I did remember was when they were waking me up. And that was so strange. You know, it was so strange. It was like, it wasn't Stella's experience for me. It was sort of, I woke up and I just knew, I knew that I was in another world and I knew it was true and that everything before was false. And for some reason, I thought I was in a New York City high rise apartment. And then I was in a TV show and I could hear other actors um, approaching me and talking to me. And I also couldn't move. And I had this thought in my head, which was that nobody's going to help me, but I have to get out of here. And I started to move. And I found out later I was just trying to pull the tubes out. And then one of the actors who was probably a nurse came and put it back in and then it all went black. But when I came back up, it was always something weird, you know, like I thought 
I thought there were people coming in and doing experiments on me. And I thought that there was, uh, you know, I, I thought that there was, they were putting on a musical. And I do remember sitting up and saying, I can't do this, I'm sick. And I don't know what they were saying to me, but it was in a different language. And it felt very real. The most terrifying thing was that I couldn't remember things. And I, the nurse, when I started to really come out of it, I would say to the nurse, where's my husband? Where's my baby? And they said, oh, they were just here. And I would say, like, no, you're lying to me. Why are you lying to me? And they kept saying, he was just here. And I'd say, call my husband, call my husband. She said, I did, he's out shopping. I would say, shopping? What are you talking about? And it just, I began to get in my head that my husband and my baby had died in this experiment and they weren't telling me. So, you know, it was just that feeling of being in a very different world and I could smell certain things really strongly and I could taste other things and I just didn't know what was going on. And it was kind of a never ending sort of weird nightmare for me. And I was just trying to think of how I was gonna make it for Stella and make it a little bit more pleasant for her than it had been for me. <laughs> so I made her able to recognize, oh, my mother's there. And oh, I mean, because I didn't think anybody I knew was there, even though they were all theirs. But for Stella, like, yeah, she could smell, she could smell her mother's perfume. She could smell um, Simon, what he smelled. She could smell like one of her friends or she was aware of voices. If I was aware of voices, they were saying like crazy, incomprehensible stuff. So that's how I got there. <laughs> it's so fascinating to think that in a way you you wrote your image of how you built it for Stella is like a comfort to what you were actually going through. Yes, it was exactly a comfort for me. When I finished this book, I just felt, you know, I really wanted to thank Stella because she had she had really helped me and you know i really don't have any of the ptsd stuff anymore except for sleep i'm, I'm always a little anxious about going to sleep because it's still a little like coma but you know it's different when i think about the coma now i'm more apt to think about stella's coma than my own which makes it like okay she got out of that she got a lot of good stuff out of it she was actually a happier better person because of that and i'm actually a happier better I hope person because of that do you think the distance between the sort of you, you you have an event so close to you in part of your personal history do you think the distance between the you that experienced that and how you wrote Stella experiencing that 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 amount of distance is what made it possible to write it as a fiction yeah I do because the first coma book I I wrote like you know right after I had my son. So that was like 25, 24 years ago. This book I wrote like four years ago. So I had all that time to realize, okay, I'm totally healthy now. I'm not seeing doctors. Uh, my blood is fine. It's not going to come back. I don't have to worry about it. Um, so yeah, the distance was really important. Plus I had all that time I had been doing all that work on myself as, you know, becoming a kinder, nicer person. So one change in Stella that I, I was curious about is her own ambition. She starts her nursing career <laughs> hungry, you know, the best nurse that she can uh -huh. be, loves her work. And her drive switches over to such a different way of being driven with painting, um, no less work driven, but very much compelled in this kind of feral way. Does that speak to your relationship with your creativity? Yeah, I was really interested in like, what does it mean to be a success, which is something that both she and her boyfriend grappled with. I mean, when I, you know, my first book, I was a big success, you know, flavor of the month, reviewed everywhere, da da da, and they just sort of went da 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 da, until pictures of you went a big success again, and it was very funny. Because because I knew then, after all those years of failure, that you know what, it's not about the fame. It's like I had no hope that like, oh, the next one book will be even bigger. Because I've come to realize that the thing about success is that and fame and ambition is that, that so much is outside you. I mean, it's timing, it's luck, it's what people you reach. 
Um, it has, and if you're going to focus on that instead of focusing on the joy of what you're doing, then why do it? You know, like why do it at all? And it's it's funny. I had a I had a talk with Elizabeth Strout, who I I call Elizabeth Strout my spirit animal because. I spoke to her the day before she got the Pulitzer. And number one, she did not tell me she was getting it. And number two, after she got it, I talked to her. I said, why didn't you tell me? And she said, because it has nothing to do with the work. You know, it's just always, you know, it's like, it's like, yeah, someone comes by and they give you extra hot fudge or cherry on the Sunday, but who cares? It's not like how you feel. And I feel like, okay, that's, that's the way I'm going to work now. And, it's also if you look at ambitioning, like who is who's getting the awards, who's getting the prizes, you're gonna make yourself miserable. And also there are a lot of wonderful books who I just wonderful authors who I just love. And most people have not heard of them. I mean, one of my favorite books in the world is this book called Um Edges, which was it got republished and it was called um uh, the Fragile Mistress by Leora Skolkin Smith. It's a love story set between Palestine and Israel, and it is remarkable, remarkable. I don't know how well it sold. It got some film interest, but to me, it's like I still reread that book because it's fabulous. She has another book coming out called um, uh, Stealing, Losing Faith or Stealing Faith. I'm not sure of the title, but again, it's the same thing. There are books that I've read that book and this, I had the same feeling about, I love this book, love this book. And yet there are certain books that everybody loves that I read and I think, am I missing something? And then I realize, no, because not all books are for all people. It's like, mm-hmm. no, but not what, what you're going to do is not going to be for everybody. And for Stella, it's like, she didn't care about being famous. She just sort of, the fame came to her, which was the fame that her boyfriend wanted. And she and he both come to realize that it's the art and doing the art that matters mm-hmm. and because it goes out to other people and, and the right people maybe will be reached, but it helps you. It has nothing to do with, you know, fame. That's just like an empty thing. And you can see it across the board. I mean, with music, there's so many great musicians who oh. nobody's ever heard of. Actors, actors and actresses, nobody's ever heard of them. And yet there's some terrible actors and actresses who always get roles. And I always think, they're terrible. Why are they getting that role? And it's because people will come to see them and people will make money, but it has nothing to do with art. If you're just joining us, today's guest is novelist Caroline Levitt here on KBOO Portland 90.7 FM. You reminded me of this um, quote Margaret Atwood said once about getting all this acclaim is like telling the duck that you really love the pate. <laughs> yes, that's right. That's hilarious. And that's so, that is so, so true. It's like there's, because there's so much joy in writing. And, you know, I don't know how, I don't know how Days of, Days of Wonder is going to do. It's kind of like, but my feeling is, you know what? I'm already into my next novel after that. And now I'm caring and worrying about those people. And that's bringing me pleasure. So it's, uh, I think it was, maybe it's Martha Graham who said that, or maybe it was Andy Warhol. It was like, don't pay attention to what people say about your work. What if they're saying you just keep your head to the ground and keep working? You know, you make the art, let them worry about what it means. And I think that's really good advice. Yeah. 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 I was going to ask you about Stella and Simon's relationship where what changes across her coming out of this coma where he was the person who wanted to be famous and he loses that opportunity and she's sort of against her own efforts becoming famous anyway. I was wondering about, did your relationship to getting recognition change after you came out of your coma? Yeah, um, I think it did because the the first year or year and a half when I was out of my coma, I was mostly thinking about, am I gonna be well? You know, am I am I going to be well? Am I going to, you know, I I was radically transformed inside and out. I mean, I lost all my hair. 
I was bloated out from the meds, you know, really, really bloated out. My skin was gray. If you looked at me, you thought, oh, something's really wrong with that woman. So that was sort of my focus. Um, and when I started to write again, I was more concerned with what's true and what's you know, going to feed me rather than what's going to feed other people. So there definitely was a change in how I felt about art. I didn't want to, you know, I don't really go to writers' parties and stuff that much. I'm actually kind of shy. <laughs> but um, when I did go and people would be talking about, oh, who got this? And I sold this many. And what do you, I would just sort of say, you know what, I'd rather talk about the food or something else because it didn't interest me anymore. And I noticed that it just made me feel bad. Why do you think that is? Why do you think that was? Because I think that, I think it has to do with like how I was brought up a lot or that, you know, I, my mother was really big on comparing me to other people. So it was always like, look at that person. Um, that person has really neat hair. Why can't you be like that? Or why can't you, you know, so on and on. So whenever anybody would say, oh my God, guess what? I just, you know, I just found out that I got a, a Guggenheim. I would hear it as, you know, one part of me would say, oh, that's great. I'm really happy for you. And the other half would say, what she's really saying to me is, you weren't good enough to get a Guggenheim. Even if I hadn't applied, which I hadn't, it still made me feel like you weren't good enough. And I began to realize that I could win the Pulitzer and it, I would still feel that voice inside of me saying, you weren't good enough to get it. And that means that even if I did get it, I would want something more. I would think, well, they felt sorry for me or, you know, whatever. And that's ridiculous. I don't want to feel those things anymore. It takes up too much energy. Mm -hmm. So that's a pretty big change in sort of your identity as a writer. Yeah. Yeah. It's healthier and it's much better. And also now I'm not, I don't feel intimidated anymore by other writers, which I used to be, you know, I used to think like, oh, they're better than me. And especially, you know, in talking to them, I realized every writer has, you know, crises of confidence when they're writing. And we should all talk about it because then it'll be better for other people to hear that. You know, everybody feels that way. I think that can be part of the mystique of the of the identity sometimes is yeah I think so I think you're right I think you're right but it shouldn't be I think you know it's hard it's really really hard work to be a writer yeah did you and one of the things I've also read about you is that you, another change after the comas you started to connect or maybe maybe this links into also because I didn't ask you about what you when you were writing during the pandemic that was the other one I wanted to ask you about but that you sort of reached out to kind of the online community and, and broadened your relationship base among writers, yeah? I did, it was crazy, it was absolutely crazy. As I said, very shy. And when the pandemic started, I was set to go on tour and I was supposed to fly down to Dallas to speak in front of 150 librarians. And then I'll go and call me and they say, we're really sorry, it's canceled. And I said, well, are you going to reschedule? And they said, no, everything is canceled. And I thought, oh, my God. And I walked around the house thinking everything is canceled. Everything is canceled. And I said, no, everything is not canceled. And I had prepared this 40-minute speech with hand motions. And just for fun, I videotaped it and I sent it to my editor, Algonquin, saying, this is my speech. And they said, oh, marketing's going to love this. We're going to take this and send it out to all the librarians. And I thought, that's a good idea. So I went on Facebook and I said, I thought it was just going to be like, 10 people. And I said, you know what? Anybody who lost your tour, I'm starting the Nothing is Canceled book tour. Send me a three-minute video. Shout out another author. Shout out another indie, shout out an indie bookstore. We'll see what we get. I had like 200 in like three days. After a week, I was so inundated, I didn't know what to do. And Ron Charles from the Washington Post called me up and said, Caroline, what are you doing? And I said, I don't know. And he said, well, whatever it is, I'll help if you need me to. So then I got a call from Jenna Blom and she said, Caroline, do you need help? And I said, oh my God, please. And I was really lucky because Jenna is so good with tactical stuff and setting things up. So we started A Mighty Blaze and we started, we said like, oh, it's going to be just small. It was not small. We had 
200 sponsors at the get-go. All these places, we were written up everywhere. They had our pictures everywhere. I thought, this is really weird. I've been fired from every corporate job I've ever had. How can we and do And you this? started a business. And I started a business and then now weird. But it soon, you know, again, it was the same sort of thing where I felt like, well, I'm not happy doing the business stuff. Like every week we would have, we soon had a staff of 30 volunteers and every week we'd have a meeting and Jenna would always run them. And I finally said to Jenna, I'm not happy. I can't, I can't do these meetings. And she said, you don't have to. What you should do is reach out to writers and get them for us to interview and I'll do everything else. And I said, oh, that's great. That's really great. And so I was able to, I don't know why. I mean, Jenna thinks I have a gift of doing this, but I don't know why. I was able to get writers. I mean, I went to John Irving. They said yes to you. He said yes. I went to David Duchovny, said a reluctant yes, but I got him to do that because I had, in, I had reviewed one of his books like years and years ago. He said yes. Um, Elizabeth Stroud, of course, said yes, of course I'll come. Everybody, we started getting all these names after names after names. And at first I was really nervous interviewing them. And then I would, before every interview, I would calm myself down and say, okay, they're a writer, you're a writer. What have you got to lose? Just ask the questions that you want to know. And that's what I did. And what helped is because it was Zoom, I always knew that, okay, once the interview's over, I can shut it off and I can go back to being quiet and shy or whatever else I am. And I began to really love it. And so that's what I do. That's what I do now. Jenna, I told Jenna, you can be the mouthpiece. You can be the CEO which she is. Um, I said, the only thing I ever want to be credited is that I is that I was one of the co-founders and that I had started the Nothing is Canceled book tour just because I'm proud of myself for doing it. I just want the credit. I just want the credit. And I said, if you win, the only other thing I want to do is I want to be able to talk to the writers who I want to talk to and I will reach out and get them. And so it, that changed my whole feeling about myself because I realized, well, good for me that I went outside my comfort zone, but even better for me that I knew that I did not want to get involved in the business end of things, which I'm not. What do you love? It's another topic I had for you because I love watching you interview writers. And <laughs> I wanted to ask you about how that has been for you, what you love about it, what's challenging about it. What I love about it is that, well, let me talk to say what's challenging first is that you don't know what somebody's personality is going to be like. I can You can tell within the first minute if somebody is warm or open or if they're kind of guarded. I mean, and I've done interviews with people where they were not friendly and I felt like I couldn't wait for the interview to be over because every question I got at one point, someone actually said, yeah, they like had that outtake of breath. I thought, okay, this is not a good interview. But there have been people who are like just absolute delight. I mean, I was very intimidated to interview Lauren Grock because I love her work. I just love her work. And she was from the get-go so hilariously silly and out there like, and we were just laughing. It was one of the best, funniest interviews. So I love it when you know, okay, this person's going to be good or this person isn't going to be good or, and you just sort of roll with it. And I, it's good for me because I've had to realize it really has nothing to do with me. It's who that person is. You know, if that person is going to be that way, then they're probably that way with everybody, not just with me. And it's been fun. It's It's been really, really fun. And I try to ask questions that nobody else has asked. And the only thing about the interviews that makes me anxious is when there's usually a producer there who can do all the tech stuff. And sometimes they can't show up, so I have to do it myself. And then I'm really nervous <laughs> because then I don't quite know how to do it. But it's been a really good thing for me. And it's it also, I feel like I'm helping the writer's community. There is a writer's community, and it's really important to help other writers and there's so many little ways of doing it even if what it is is like just posting on twitter oh i read this book and i loved it and by another author i mean little or writing to uh, you know writing a nice little note to an author you admire not asking for anything and that's how i got john irving because i wrote him a letter 
a two-page letter, and I didn't ask for a thing. He wrote me back a two-page letter, which I still have. And the first paragraph was, you know, I reread your letter three times because I couldn't find the ask. And then when I realized you weren't asking anything, I thought, okay, I'm going to write back to you. And I thought, that is so great. And that's what people need to do. It's like an act of kindness, just telling somebody, you know, I think you're great and your book meant so much to me and this is why. And it's a lovely thing to do and it matters. It matters to people. Mm -hmm. So have you noticed after doing so many interviews, like what your, where your interest tends to go? Like, have you found out what you find most interest in when you're trying to unpack something about a a writer or a Yeah, I'm interested in like what gave the writer. I'm always interested in process. How did you do this? Was, was there ever, I'm always interested in, I'm interested in the questions that plague me. Did you, do you ever like feel like, oh, I learned something from my past book and that I can use in this book? Cause I, I never feel that way. Mm-hmm. And it's gratifying when the writers say, no, it's always a new thing. <laughs> or I'd like to ask questions like, was there ever a moment when you thought, I'm giving this up, I'm not going to be a writer anymore? I'm going to go to school because I always joke about that and to me that's really important because I like to I like to hear that I I like I like people to laugh and have a good time I like to know where their ideas came from I don't know it's just always really interesting to me and there are things that I remember about like well this writer said that and that writer said that it's just it's a really nice conversation it's a really nice conversation most of the time do you feel like it affected your writing? Probably, yeah, but only, but in a weird way. And then when I'm writing now, I don't, when I used to write, I used to always think, oh, I, I wonder if all these other writers I admire think I'm a hack. And that would sort of stop me, you know, that would stop me from, you know, writing what I wanted to write. Or I think they're just, you know, they're just being nice to me, but they don't really like my work or think it's special or whatever. Now that I've spoken to many writers, I feel like that's for me. That's not from them. Nobody has ever said to me, well, you know, if you ever get to my stature stature or anything like that, that's going to be for me. And that's something that I need to keep working on so I don't think that. That's, you know, self-punishing. So in that way, it's freed me up a lot where I think, you know what, everybody has their own path. And if you compare, I think the AA thing is compare equals despair. And it does. You know, as soon as you do that, then you can, I can dig myself into a black, black hole. And I don't want to do that. I was wondering about another thing that you talk a lot about is that you think about story structure. Do you talk about that in your interviews with I do. I always ask them because a lot of writers don't believe in story structure. A lot of writers would say like, no, no surprises for the writer, no surprises for the reader, which is what I used to think, but I don't anymore. Um, and a lot of people just say, no, it just comes from the muse. And I say, okay, you know, I wish that happened for me, but it does not. I mean, initially I did not use story structure and I would come out with 800 page books. And then I would have to look at them and say, what the, what, what is this book about? <laughs> and I have to zone it down. And it was actually a writing student of mine who told me about John Truby. And, and I said, I don't want to structures like, I, I don't do that. And she said, well, I'm just going to send you a tape. Listen to it. See how you feel. So she sent me this tape, started listening to it. And he was talking about stuff I never heard of before. Like, you know, give your characters moral choices. And I said, what's a moral choice? Or like how reversals and reveals work to push a story forward. Not three-act structure, but reversing things and revealing information and how your setting should be story world, which means it's like a character. And I thought, this is really cool. I'm going to do this. And I started to use it and I discovered that it actually made things more creative, kept me having a hold on my work, just changed my life. So, I mean, I actually started stalking John Truby until I was able to interview him. And we became friends. I mean, we became friends. He's this wonderful guy. His wife is also a writer, Leslie, there, and they both know about structure. And the stuff he says is just, it's it's mind-blowing, at least to me, to me. So I always try to get people to talk about that. Well, so would it be possible to sort of apply it to one of your plots? And, and Yeah, 
Have I given an example? Is there? Yep. Yep. No, nope. like, absolutely. Okay. So, so, all right. So with With or Without You, the first thing I do is I, I, I do this for each character. I'll just do it for, for Stella's sake. Okay. So I put her in, I put it, the first thing I ask is, what does Stella want? And her first thing that she wants is she wants Simon, her partner, to grow up to stop acting like a 20-year-old Mick Jagger, to get a job uh, teaching music instead of trying to be on the road. She wants to have a baby. She wants him to be in a house. That's what she wants. What's then the next thing I ask is, well, what's her misconception about that that she doesn't realize yet, that she'll realize at the end? And see, like, well, her misconception about that is that she thinks that Simon really is going to change, that he's going to want to change, and that she's going to be the one to do it. And she thinks that if he does change, because he does change later on in the book, she'll be happy, and she's not later on in the book. So then the answer is, well, what's your what's your plan to do it? And I think, well, she's going to nag him. They're going to have a fight, a big fight at the beginning of the book. She wants him, don't go on tour, come with me, stay with me. Okay, so that doesn't work. She ends up in a coma, da-da-da, she gets out of the coma. So then what's her plan? Well, her plan then is she's in a whole different world, and her plan is just to focus on herself first. So I take her through those steps, focusing herself. She's got this new talent. And to her surprise, there's a reversal where the man she adored, Simon, she doesn't feel anything for anymore. Now what she's going to do, you know, everything in the story is because this happened, what's going to happen next? What's she going to do next? So she doesn't feel anything for him. So what is she going to do? She doesn't know. She doesn't know who she is. So she goes out and she finds that a reveal that if she does if she runs really fast, skirts danger, it gives her adrenaline. She feels strong. So with that reveal, she does more dangerous things until she does something really dangerous and she finds out there's, you know, there's a little girl involved and she realizes, I can't do that anymore. So then there's another reveal where she sits down and starts drawing and all of a sudden she feels better. So then I get to the place which I call the big doom. Like she's still trying to figure out what she wants and she's getting this fame. The big doom is the all in loss moment where the character realizes that what she wanted is not what she needs and where she has to start from scratch. So for Stella, it's that she realizes that Simon is seeing and Libby, her best friend, and is in love with Libby. She realizes that that is that is just gone. He's been lying to her. She realizes that she doesn't want to be a nurse anymore. She tried that. It doesn't work. What does she have left? She said everything is gone, gone, gone. So in that moment, she realized her misconception about what her life would look like. And she goes to the one place that makes her feel safe, which is Woodstock story world this is the story world she needs to be in if she's in a house she loved she's always loved this house while she's there she gets involved in the community she loves the community she discovers oh my gosh i'm starting to heal i don't need to be famous but i can live in this little town and you know do my art and i have friends i like and all this other stuff and then at the end you know she she's a whole person she gets what she wanted there's one thing at the beginning that she wanted a baby and she gets that at the end not in the way she thought she would but in a different way and that's that's story structure for stella and it all like i try to do that kind of work before i even start writing and that will take that's me what you got months. from truby mm -hmm. That's what I got from, well, a lot of it, I, a lot of the stuff I sort of made up myself mm -hmm. and I, I don't use all his stuff, but his stuff is the basis for what I do. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it's the basis for most story structure stuff. It's not like anybody's really doing anything new. It's just the way they're talking about it. Well, one of the, when I was watching your interview with him, I was, you guys were starting to talk about, which I thought was fascinating about genre. Right. And about combining genre. Right. Are you thinking about genre at all with this? I do. I always think about genre because um, a while ago there was this odious thing where they would 
there would be the umbrella term of women's fiction and that women read it, but men don't. And then, you know, people would look down on sci-fi or people would look down on romance and all these stupid titles. And when I was published, I began to realize that genre is really about marketing. You know, they think I have YA writer friends whose books were marketed as adult novels and adult novelists whose books were marketed as YA. And it, it sort of doesn't matter. But what people are doing now is they're blurring the line. Like there are literary writers who are writing dystopian novels. Um, Emily St. John Mandel started out as her, she wrote these kind of gritty crime novels and now she's writing dystopia. And the thing is that first of all, it's fun to do that. And second of all, why not? It oh, and truly, he has this new book. I think it's called The Anatomy of Genre, and it's interesting because he talks about like how a love story can also be a horror story, and how all horror stories are actually histories. Or I'm not saying exactly what he's saying right, but it forces you to look at story differently because nobody wants to look at the same stories all the time. You know, it it, it adds something interesting, something different see how it works well thank you so much much. again caroline thank you so much a thousand kisses thanks for listening to this week's between the covers with me your host avi mar with musical help from john beck listener-supported community radio. Stay tuned for Shocks of Sheba, up next after these headlines. Bienvenidos a un breve informativo en su estación comunitaria KBOO 90.7 FM.